Hello and welcome to Dining Room Histories with Amr and Marina, the podcast where we answer the question, which historical figure you most want to have dinner with. Every week we pick two guests and tell each other and you their life stories. The only catch is they have to have been dead at least five years. Okay. We are back. <laughs> yes. Season two, I guess. Season two. We'll call it season two. Yeah. Season two. Fifteen is a good... Fifteen episodes is a good respectable first season. Sure. We're like a British series. Yeah. It's like halfway between British and American. I'm okay with that. We're somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. I'm fine with that. We're We're, Iceland. We're Iceland. Welcome to our Icelandic season two. (laughs) None of the people... None of our dinner guests will be Icelandic. No. I don't know. Actually, I'm speaking for you, but Uh, I'm assuming. No. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So things are very different now. I'm in a different place. I have a different desk. I'm in the same place. I have a different desk. But I've been to different places. True. You went on vacation like an adult. Yes. I behaved in adult manners while on vacation. Exactly. That is correct. Yep. And when we met up, we were. We I both did not behaved. consume a beer the size of my head. And when we met up, we were both responsible adults. Mm-hmm. And made it onto Umber our buses did... without having to sprint <laughs> through the Port Authority. Yes. And, like, almost tackle someone out of the way. Yeah. Th- those are I all definitely things... didn't flirt with a 60-year-old man, so he'd let me on a bus without a ticket. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, didn't get that. I didn't get that part of the story. That was it. That's the whole story. Because I, I had my e-ticket, right? But Greyhound doesn't accept them. Yeah. And the guy at the Greyhound door was, like, old. And he was about to say no to me. And then I was started, like, batting my eyelashes at him and being like, Sir, you know what you're doing. Please help me. And he seemed like a meek little woman. And then he helped me. Oh, boy. And I'm not proud of that moment, but I got on my bus. No. You owned it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah. But whatever. No, I just whatever. like sprinting. We also didn't travel, you know, multiple hours just to have brunch in Brooklyn. That is not a thing that I did. Absolutely not. Of course not. Of course not. I also did not hey man, have... I got on a plane, so... That's true. <laughs> I did not have Taco Bell chicken... Not chicken chips or whatever the fuck they call them. Ew. At a rest I don't stop know what you're talking about, but that sounds terrible. <laughs> I Snapchatted you that. Did you? I think so. Was, was it, my... it that night when you were heading back? No, it was when my bus broke down on the oh, way in. Oh, it was in. that Doritos thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was I like the chicken Doritos shit. with like queso sauce that yeah. I had at like ten thirty in the mo- like in the morning because I'd been up since like six and had yeah, breakfast fair. at six. Yo, the most disgusting rest stop food. We stopped at uh, Buffalo um, on my bus between like New York and back. And fuck, there's a quote Tim Hortons there. It's not a fucking Tim Hortons. It's in America. But they call themselves a Tim Hortons. And they had like a fried chicken sandwich because Tim Hortons is doing those now. Yep. It was awful. It was the most disgusting thing I've ever had. So (laughs) one of the worst things I've ever had... Um, I say this drinking my homemade cold brew 
um, which mm-hmm. I made in a growler that once contained kombucha because I am hipster garbage. <laughs> um, so I once was at uh, Dunkin' Donuts for like an afternoon coffee break um, mm-hmm. with my friends, and um, I ordered a what I thought was a sweet and salty cold brew. Which I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. Let's see what it's like. Because Dunkin' Donuts is like Dunkin' Donuts actually has surprisingly decent cold brew. That's untrue. There is nothing good about Dunkin' Donuts. Careful, it was all our American listeners. I don't care. I feel like we've lost them at some point already. What they call a bagel is a poor excuse for a rock. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree with that. So I gotta get the flatbread. The veggie, the veggie no. egg white flatbread is my sad breakfast sandwich of choice at Dunkin' Donuts. But like, if you have a, a sad breakfast, if you're having a sad breakfast sandwich kind of day, just go to McDonald's. What if there's no McDonald's near you? Burger King, Wendy's, anything. Fair. Starbucks, even some of their breakfast sandwiches will be, make you sad too. Yeah, but like there's, but like those are like sad breakfast sandwiches that you pay like a month's salary for. Oh, shut. Okay, no, their breakfast sandwich is like four dollars. It's fine. Four Canadian dollars. It'll be like three dollars in the states. It'll no, it's still like four Canadian. It's like four. It's like still four U.S. dollars. Okay, so if we're oh. talking about Starbucks, well, you're being ripped off. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, everything is really expensive in Boston. Um. <laughs> But okay, if we're talking about Starbucks, what the fuck is going on with their menu? Like they've gone like oh, with all the super... weird fruity shit. Sorry. With all the weird fruity shit. Well, just in general, they've gotten like super fucking like bougie and hipster. Are you? Well, okay. I mean, like, kidding? like, like they've always been like that. But like now they have like yeah, they've always been like, like now they have like sous vide egg. No, they don't have that here yet. Oh. They have a lot of quiches now here. Oh, interesting. Oh, so it's so like okay, but one thing that uh, they had when I was in Toronto that they don't have here is um, the like la boulange um, like croissant stuff. Yeah, that stuff is actually decent. No, it's really good. Like, the Starbucks croissants are like like they're fantastic. actually like proper croissants. So I was like, holy yeah. fucking shit! Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure a French person would, like, spit on us for saying that, but I think they're very good. <laughs> okay, in, like, they're actually, like, some of the better croissants I've had in North America. Yeah, yeah, me too. Which, like, make of that what you will. Oh, God, this is making me God. really hungry. I haven't had breakfast yet. I feel yet. so fucking bougie right now. Just comparing the croissants in North <laughs> Hi, America. Hi, listeners! <laughs> Hello! <laughs> Missed us? Uh, this is a history podcast, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we're going to talk about history and food. Hey, no, no, no we're, we're like dining room histories. It's like the dining room part of it. Exactly. Oh, although, okay, I'm just going to shout out a different podcast that I really like that I keep telling you to freaking listen to that you don't. Everyone should listen to Food Stuff. It's amazing. Food Stuff? Yeah. Right, you keep telling me about it, but it's I'm really by the, like. It's by the, like, how, I think, anyway, it's by the, like, How, how stuff, stuff Works, works people. people. Cool. Yeah. But, like, it's really good. They just talk about the history of, like, a different food every week and how it became popular. And, like, maybe if there are problematic elements to it, they bring it up. But it's a good podcast, and it makes you really hungry. <laughs> but it's great. That's what I look for in my podcast. No, I, mm-hmm. actually, I've not been very good at listening to podcasts. Uh, before, I lived, like, really close to work. 
and so I didn't have a commute, which is when I most listen to my podcasts. So I most mm-hmm. listen to podcasts when I'm either commuting or cooking. Uh, but I just moved, and um, the way it works out is my uh, my roommates and I all work at the same place, and so we usually just head into work together. And I usually go to the gym with one of my roommates, so I usually so I head back with a roommate as well. And so I have not been listening on my commute, and yeah, we... You haven't been cooking? Well, um, it's not that I haven't been cooking. It's just that our kitchen is, like, attached to our living room. And so when I'm cooking, I'm usually also just talking to my roommates. Ah, I see. So no more room for podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I think I no longer another co-host, clearly. Sorry. <laughs> Oh. If you don't have room for a podcast, I should find another co-host. Ouch. I see how it is. Just because I have real friends. <laughs> um, excuse you. I have real friends. I also have room for my art in my life. Ouch. I see how it is. <laughs> and we're back from hiatus, and this is the last episode. At least that I'll be doing. Time for, like, our splinter podcasts. Like, our competing splinter. Yes, our guest next week will actually just be taking over. That's what this is. Yeah. There will oh, be, I don't like, know a if we'll live... Actually, uh, that was a false announcement. I don't know if we'll have a guest next week. We'll have a guest sometime we in the future. We will have a guest at some point soon. Yes. I, we just don't know when that episode's going to go out. We're working on... We're working on collecting guests. Mm-hmm. We'll have a human collection. Why? Why? Why did, was that necessary? <laughs> <laughs> Is anything ever really necessary? Yes. Yes, I can think of plenty of things that would be really, really necessary. I don't know. Eating, making creepy remarks. You know. Uh, having clear-cut impeachment laws in your system of government. Pfft. Humbug. I mean, there are some clear... Just something that comes to mind. There's, like, some clear-cut impeachment laws. They're just designed so they'll, like, essentially never work. Yeah, that makes them not so clear. I mean, they're clear. They're just ineffective. Okay, fine. Having effective impeachment laws. Yeah, you know. Whatevs. A little bit of obstruction of justice. Yeah. A little bit of collusion with foreign governments. That's uh, a spice of life. What is this podcast turning into? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, okay, so it's been long enough that we actually don't know who's meant to go first. We also just apparently don't remember what we're doing anymore or what kind of podcast we are. It's okay. I also did realize who's meant to go first. But uh, we could just start over. Let's just start over. Okay. I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't trust you. You're going to say Thank that you. I'm meant to go first. But you are meant to go first, according to the sure. Google that we keep. <laughs> sure. Okay. Okay. We're going to do, right. on air, rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> yes, we're going to do that. <laughs> it was a bright idea I have that I am now regretting. <laughs> yep. Okay. Okay. So, one... Two, three, rock. What? I forgot to you say, want to say something. something. <laughs> okay, you want to okay. say something. You do it. <laughs> I was okay. just like, okay, when are we gonna go? Okay, okay, and then I, I chickened out. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right, let's try okay. again. One. You count out. Mm-hmm. Two, three. Okay. Scissor. 
Scissors! <laughs> what did you say? Okay, I don't think this is going to work because I think there's like a delay. Okay. What did you say, though? Scissors. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, all right, I'll just go first. I trust you. <laughs> well, now I'm like scared that I've misled you by accident. So on episode 14, I went first, and then we did 16 episodes total, right? Yep. Okay, yeah, so you go first. All right. Okay, this is me. Like, also the fact that we have okay. the tea time things also makes it harder. No, but just the first person who goes goes again at tea time, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we're bringing those back, too, people. Oh, yes, yeah, so those, those are back, too. Yeah. And guests will be coming soon. Okay. Hopefully. Hopefully. Logistics okay. are hard. Let's go. Okay. Um, yes. Wow. Some of this is a little bit dated. Um, like, as if I'm, like, two months ago dated. Wow. Wait, what? Yours is relevant? No. But they have to have been dead five years. Sorry? No, no, no. It's just, like, I was writing about, like, what I was doing at the time. Oh, okay. Um, because I started off by saying that recently I found forensic files on Netflix. Um, <laughs> that's not very recent. I've, like, binge-watched the entire, like, everything that's on Netflix of that show. Um, mm -hmm. because I just wanted, like, a brain rot when I got home. Um, but anyways, oh, whoa, ah, okay. I almost lost all my notes. Okay, um, so yeah, so when I was researching this, I was binge-watching Forensic Files on Netflix. Um, and so my story today isn't quite true crime, but it's, like, true crime adjacent. Um, and I'm also getting in on Mina's turf. And I'm talking about Hollywood. Okay. Um, so we're going to go back to the golden age of Hollywood in like the 1920s, like 19, like late 1940s, like 1948-ish. Um, Is this Bugsy Siegel? No, it's not. Okay. No, no, it's not the, it's not direct, it's, it's like related to people. But it's not... I mean, the people there have definitely committed crimes, but I'll let people judge. Um, okay. Anyways, so to set the stage, like, at the time, the film industry was, like, dominated by these, like, huge movie studios that, like, essentially had a, like, monopoly on everything. Like, um, all aspects of the film business. So this, like, this, like, one individual corporation would control everything from production all the way through booking, distribution... Um, and all the sales throughout. Um, okay. So, um, for a while, they were actually able to generate huge amounts of money. Um, before uh, antitrust laws came and were like, "Yeah, you can't do that," because they essentially ha like had a chokehold on the industry. Um, and also, the start of to like the sort of like the nineteen fifties and into the nineteen sixties was also sort of the rise of television. Um, and that sort of made this, like, humongous studio system both illegal and unsustainable. Um, okay. But, like, if you sort of think, like, I almost picture this whole era as, like, being in a film noir-esque thing. Because, like, the mob was, like, the mob and the studio executives were just, like, mingled in, like, constantly mingled socially. And a lot of times, like, the mob actually ran some studios at various periods. Okay. And so um, organized crime and the film industry at the time were kind of intertwined together. 
um, and like a lot of sort of film scandals at the time had involved like various CD underworld figures. Um, but mm-hmm. um, but uh, Hollywood also because of like the decency laws at the time had to keep up with like very wholesome like like this very like wholesome uh, clean like clean looking front to sell the movies. Right. Um, and so there was a lot of like there was a lot of like PR esque stuff like a lot of like the big early PR stuff was due to, was like through the system. And that's kind of what I'm going to talk about, actually. Um, so the other thing is that actors were pretty much owned by the studios, and they'd signed on, like okay. they'd signed on to like super long term contracts or lifelong contracts with the studio, and they were, and like in addition, like these contracts, in addition, like the studio owning them, and like not letting them work on mm-hmm. anyone else, they also had like very strict morality clauses, um, which so the studio would control what they were allowed to do in their personal lives. So that they could control this like wholesome upfront image, um, right? So some, but the thing is, some of these actors were extremely valuable, and sometimes they found themselves at the center of big scandals. But the studio didn't want to lose their like big name actor, so they'd want to make these problems disappear. Um, okay, and so. When you take a bunch of actors, throw in drugs, alcohols, affairs, and organized crime, there were a lot of problems that needed to be fixed. Of course. All right. Um, So Howard Strickland was born in West Virginia on September 25th, 1896. Um, Howard Strickland? Howard Strickland. Okay. Um, So for the early part of his life, he had a successful career but as a journalist he was average fine successful but not particularly noteworthy um but in the late 1920s after he retired from journalism Mm -hmm. he very that would very quickly change um so he started on he started working for mgm as their head of publicity like metro goldwyn mayor um so at the time they were one of, if not the largest and most successful studio conglomerates in Hollywood. And, and even today, they kind of still are. Um, they, like, like, even today, they're still, like, behind a lot of, like, the big blockbuster films. So some of the films yeah. they had um, were, like, at the time, there was Wizard... So they, so they are the people who made Wizard of Oz, they made Doctor Zivago, they made Gone with the Wind. And for, like, more recent stuff, they also did... The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, they own the James Bond series, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. To be clear, I, I believe nowadays they're a sales agent, right? I think so. So so the way in which they the way in which they're involved has changed. Yeah. Um but I'm not I think. I don't know, actually, I might be wrong, but So I think um... So it's definitely not the, not in the same sense because before like the those early movies I listed, um, with the exception mm-hmm. of Wizard of Oz, actually. Um, but a lot of those movies were like were the period where they were like these giant studios. So they handled, they owned every aspect of the movie. And contr- oh no, they still produce as well. Yeah, so I'm pretty I sure they produced. To make the sure Hob- I wasn't. I'm pretty sure they produced Lord of the Rings. Huh. If I remember right, I didn't. I didn't go into too much detail in my notes for this because it wasn't terribly relevant to the story for the more recent stuff. Um, yeah. But I do remember 
I vaguely remember reading that they produced uh, Lord of the Rings. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, at like at the period where Howard Strickling started to uh, work there, this was sort of in the like rise of the like this was like at the very beginning of the golden age of cinema. Um, mm-hmm. So these studios were just starting to get like their big um, market share. I've forgotten the name of the guy. This is not in my notes, but uh, there was the really well-known silent film actor who was, um, as it turned out, yeah. So my favorite murder did an epi- did an episode on this at some point, which is an awesome podcast that everyone should listen to. Um, anyone who likes true crime, um, but they did an episode on this guy, and I'm blanking on his name. Um, he was like one of the big silent film actors. Um, he was oh the one who like shot his girlfriend, right? Sorry. No, no, no. He was the one who was accused oh. of... Um, he, so so there was the woman who died in his hotel room, and he was accused of murdering her. Right. Yes, that one. Um, there are a lot of... I want to say it's Fatty something. At the time. Fatty Arbuckle? That, like, killed people. Maybe. It's Fatty Arbuckle, I think. Okay. Yeah, they all blend into one for me. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of men accused of and or actually killing their girlfriends at that time working in film. Yeah. Um, the reason I mentioned yeah. Fatty Arbuckle is because um, he was sort of the, like, uh, so he was sort of the big, it was like the big scandal. And it was the one that actually started these morality clauses um, in Hollywood. Huh. Um, cool. I do believe that Fatty Arbuckle was officially acquitted and it is like widely believed that he didn't actually murder this woman. Um, like, uh, but it did destroy his career. Like, I think even, like, yeah. I don't think he was ever actually convicted of it. Yeah. Uh, but he was charged with a murder and it, like he went through like a huge lengthy legal proceeding, um, and like a huge media shitstorm that kind of ruined his yeah. career and also caused huge problems for Hollywood as a whole and like their image. I mean, it's about time, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> it was about time. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, so that was sort of the origin. That, so that was like the origin of the morality clauses and like that kind of thing, and that happened like shortly. Mm-hmm. That happened like shortly before this. Um. Mm-hmm. So um, at this point, um, the studios realized that they they had a lot to gain um, by sort of having this like curated, manicured set of images. Um, for each of their actors that sort of fit into the image of the studio. So, like, the actors, in addition to sort of who they were in the film, they also had, like, this persona that was, um, like, this, like, persona that sort of fit into the family of the studio. So, like, they'd have, like, the bad boy actor or, like, the dapper, like, the sort of, like, dapper uh, Humphrey Bogart-style actor and each studio would sort of have these like archety- like archetypical uh, personas for the actors that would sort of line up with the characters they played. Okay. Yeah. So um, Strickling's job, along with the studio's uh, VP of operations, uh, Eddie Mannix, was to sort of build and maintain these images. Um, and they sort of went to a lot of extremes to make sure that these images stayed intact. Um, okay. Yep. So 
Mannix and Strickling were very, very different characters. So Strickling was, um, he was like dapper, charming. He was like a sort of high society gentle, like gentleman. Um, whereas Mannix was sort of on the other end. He was this tough, rough and tumble former construction worker. He was a thug. Um, he was known for having a lot of mob connections. Um, and was sort of known for like being very comfortable and moving around in like the seedy underbelly of society. Um, so together, they were this extremely effective pair of fixers who could make almost anything disappear. Um, so like, so like Strickland would hand like the high society press media coverage stuff and Mannix would sort of go in and deal with the more dubious things that needed to happen. Okay. Um, and he would like deal directly with the mob. Okay. So, so sort of from the late 60s, from the late 20s until the 60s, they were sort of main, like they maintained the image of MGM and its stars. Um, and so they were involved with covering up so many scandals that it would be impossible to go over all of them. There's a book about it written by E.J. Fleming called The Fixers, um, if people are interested in reading more. But I'm sort of going to cherry, I sort of cherry picked a couple of small samples that they handled. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one is Spencer Tracy, who is actually a very interesting person as a whole. Um, but he joined MGM in 1935 after working for Fox for five years. So in that time, he'd made a name for himself as an extremely talented actor. Um, he was um, known around Hollywood to be a very staunch Catholic and extremely religious, but he was also known as an equally staunch alcoholic and womanizer. Oh, fun. Yep. So uh, during his time with Fox, um, Tracy was a disaster for them. Um, so he would disappear for days at a time and go on drunken benders where he'd be, where he'd like eventually show up in public and be reported as like trashing restaurants and destroying hotel rooms. And he was also known for seducing many of his co-stars. Um, which also caused a lot of problems in Hollywood at the time. Yeah. Um, because one of the things Hollywood sort of like one of the big aspects of Hollywood's PR problem was that it was meant it was like a den of sin and adultery. Of course, that is a, the biggest problem with Hollywood. Exactly. But 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 like at the time that was sort of what was yeah. viewed to be the biggest problems and like there and like this was sort of at the point where not everyone was totally cool with alcohol either and so they were known for being alcoholics as well. What year was this? Sorry? So this is the 1930s. Okay. So this is like post-prohibition. Yeah. Um, But like some some of these stories did happen during like late prohibition era. Yeah. Um, This particular one did not. Um, Yep, so um, what Spencer Tracy would do when he would go on his benders and he did this apparently at times several times a week 
So he would disappear, get a cheap motel room, buy a case or three of whiskey. He would lie in the bathtub, drink until he passed out. Then he then then when he woke up again, he would drink until he passed out again. And at various points, he would and like at various times, he was reported as going on rampages in the hotel rooms and nearby restaurants and completely destroying everything. Wow. Yep. Okay. So like 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 when I say like he went on drunken benders, that's what I mean. And at various stages, he would do that multiple times a week. That's uh, impressive, in a way. Yep. So he was... He was a huge mess. Um, like, from a PR perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So Fox was, Fox was like, uh, no. We can't handle this. Like he, like, he was actually causing a PR issue for the studio as a whole. So they gave him an ultimatum. One of the uh, executives called him into the office, and they gave him an ultimatum. They told him he would he either had to stop his drinking, or they wouldn't renew his contract. And he calmly exp- right. and like they calmly explained to Tracy that um, that it was causing problems for the studio and that they couldn't handle this anymore. So Spencer yeah. Tracy listened very calmly during the meeting. He excused himself and said he needed some time to think. Walked out of the room, walked out of the studio, went to the saloon next door, got horrifically and impressively drunk, (laughs) walked calmly back into the executive's office, and completely destroyed everything. It's like he's activating a superpower. Oh, yeah, no, like he just walked in and just destroyed everything in the room. Like, you know what? Okay, buddy. <laughs> like, it's almost impressive. Like you've earned it. I mean, yeah. he has, like, like he's, like, dealing with rampant alcoholism. Yeah. And it's not great, but... <laughs> he wants yeah, to do things Yeah, I don't different. really know what to say to it. Yep. But, you know, okay. Yep. So, MGM saw that, and they were just like, this is the guy that we need. Um, so they believe that their fixer machine, um, including like, which was like headed by Strickling and Mannix could handle Tracy, um, and that the expenses that they would incur in dealing him would be well worth it to land such a big star. And like the PR coup of them, like stealing a, stealing one of Fox's best stars from them. Yeah. Um, so Strickling and Mannix, um, set out on their most challenging job yet. And they laid out a plan for how they would manage Spencer Tracy. They had a very simple strategy for this. They hired four giant thugs, or heavies, from the mob. Mm -hmm. And they would follow Tracy around. And whenever he walked into a saloon or a liquor store, they would walk up to him and forcibly remove the alcohol from him. A lot of times this just involved grabbing the bottle, throwing it on the floor... And dragging him out of the building. The other times? <laughs> um, sometimes he would get away. Um, so sometimes he would just like slip away from the heavies um, and manage to go on a drunken bender anyways. And like trash bars. 
Um, so there was a publicist that was attached to him. And this publicist mm-hmm. would walk into the bars after Tracy destroyed everything. And he would pay off bar owners and, occasion- and on multiple occasions entire rooms full of patrons to keep their mouth shut. Okay. At one point, it got so bad that Strickling and Mannix actually hired a private ambulance to follow Spencer Tracy around in case he drank too much. Wow. Yep. And this worked. Um, That's so depressing. It's fucked up. Yeah. Um, But it actually did work, and it actually did sort of get his drinking more under control. Mostly because there were, like, a bunch of thugs following him around, smashing a bottle every time he tried to drink. Yeah, that would get pretty much anything I did out of control. Which is, like, one way to do under it. Under control. Yeah. Um, but he'd, he'd actually continue to have a very successful career at MGM until 1967, when he died of a heart attack. Um, so, to this day, he is considered one of the best screen actors in the history of Hollywood. Yeah, but at what price? Oh, for sure. Like, anyway, like on a personal. I mean, yes, okay, fine. He's no longer an alcoholic, ish, but like, mm, thugs. Well, yes, like the fact that there was like a hired like mob thug, like they had to hire mob thugs to follow this guy around. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, apparently, like, all of Hollywood at the time was, like, functioning this way. Like, not, like, specifically the, like, falling around an alcoholic, but, like, hiring the mob for, like, dirty jobs was pretty commonplace. Okay. We have organized crime to thank for the golden age of cinema, as it turns out. I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but okay. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Um... So mm-hmm. that's that's sort of one of the stories. Um, okay. So strict. So another one, um, which is probably their most impressive publicity stunt, was them helping Loretta Young. Oh, I know about this. this adopt her one. own daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, while filming Call of the Wild, um, Young became pregnant by her co-star, Clark Gable, um, under extremely sketchy circumstances, to say the least. Um, the details are very sparse, but it is widely believed and highly likely that it was not consensual. Okay. Um, but um, Young decided that she did want to have her child and raise them as her own. But this was a pickle for the fixers. Because they really couldn't... They couldn't have one of their co-stars have a child, like, out of wedlock with another one of their co-stars who was married. And so they did... So so they did want to respect Young's wishes, but they needed to find a way to keep her pregnancy secret from the public while somehow explaining how the fairly young actress suddenly had a child so at first um they managed to 
uh, convince the media that Loretta Young was just sick because she would like she would like show up in appearances and then excuse herself early, saying that she wasn't feeling well um, at first, and so they managed to sort of pass that off. Um, but as her pregnancy progressed, they mm-hmm. couldn't really do that anymore once she started showing. So she went on an extended vacation um, because her health was not improving. So that was believable for a while. Until Loretta's sister got married and uh, Loretta was not there for the wedding. Okay. Um, so at this point, the media went into a frenzy. They were like, oh my god, she must be pregnant or something like that. Or like something is up with her. Like she's dead and they replaced her with a body double. Mm-hmm. Like there were all sorts of conspiracy theories about what was going on. Um, so to handle this, um, Strickling reached out to one of his friends who was a journalist at a magazine called Photoplay. And they arranged for an interview with Loretta Young, who was nine months okay. pregnant. Um, so in this interview, there was a big reveal. Young had not been on vacation, but was actually extremely ill and didn't want her fans to be concerned. The entire interview was conducted at her bed with strategically placed pillows to hide her pregnancy and with a team of fake nurses coming in to check on her uh, and like coming in to check on her and to replace prop IV bottles. The journalist was entirely convinced that Young was just sick and bought it and they saw, and they said nice. like they sold the interview. Um yep. So then Young gave birth to her daughter and the child was hidden away at a bungalow for a few months and then was placed in an orphanage in another city. Um a year after her illness, Young announced that her Ill- that her being sick made her rethink her life and she decided that um she was going mm-hmm. to adopt two children. Okay. And give them a good home. But in a heartwarming last-minute turn, the biological parents of one of the children returned to reclaim their child, and Loretta wound up just adopting one child, mm-hmm. her own daughter. Um, so um, Judy actually didn't know that her adoptive mother was actually her biological mother until a few days before she was married. That's not fucked up at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is super fucked. And it was never revealed to the public until Young um, published her published a memoir post- mm-hmm. posthumously in 2000. Well, okay. So, yeah, that's so those are the two stories I decided to do. There are a lot more of they them. They were very good at their I just jobs, like to pick basically. two to focus on, like the two craziest ones. Yeah. Uh, terrifyingly good. And oftentimes this was not yeah. ethical or okay. Okay. They were also known for being extremely vindictive. Like if people refused mm-hmm. their help, they would start to destroy their careers. Um, like at one point they outed um, one of the stars as gay, which entirely destroyed his career at the time. Um, by planting a article in a journal, like in a uh, paper, saying um, that he that he uh, him and his wife had mm-hmm. separate beds. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. 
Yeah. So they were, they were Wait, absolutely horrible plan. people. Well, that it was nudge, nudge, wink, problem. wink. Um, he hasn't... Well, they imply that the problems weren't entirely okay. of a marital nature. Yeah, I mean, they... So, so the article definitely okay. had a lot more nudge, nudge, wink, wink implications okay. in it. But, like, they published an article that was, like, essentially Fair. saying... Um, this actor I mean, is gay. Not fair, but like I understand. <laughs> Which ended his career. Huh. Yeah. Well, shit. Yep. How does he? That's what, what I happens got. Happens to the rest of his life. Oh, uh, he works there uh. until he retires and then just dies peacefully. Uh. Okay. Yeah. Well, his life. His like his own life doesn't. The rest of his life is not. Hmm. His own life didn't really have very many scandals. Uh, no, um, but they sort of started this whole Hollywood fixer thing, um, and there was a couple of people that. So, they were kind of the only people for MGM. Other studios had their own versions of that who weren't quite as effective. Shortly after they left, MGM also hired another person who was like a former police officer and was batshit insane. And, like, including, like, falsifying entire crime scenes and destroying evidence of crimes and things like that. Um, that's a story shit, for a different though. day. Like, no, I just... Like, shit. Sorry? That's a lot. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah. yeah, there's, like... Like, you could do... Like, so I think there is actually there is. an entire podcast um, about like Hollywood oh, scandals in that called? period. Uh, uh, I've forgotten what the name of it I is. I've listened to a couple episodes. I've heard, I heard an ad for it at some uh, point. Yeah, let me Google it right now. Golden Age Hollywood podcast. It has like a really like... Okay, I thought slightly cheesy name, but it was good. You must remember yeah, I this. Think, like, I, I don't think it had like a very yeah memorable That's name. Good. Yes. Anyway, um, okay. I'm not totally yeah. sure how to like come down from that, so I'm just gonna jump into mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's not really. Okay. So, as mentioned earlier, <laughs> I was on vacation. Um, and I thought you know, in honor of one of the reasons why we've been on hiatus for so long. Um, I would talk about someone who is local to where I was visiting. And I was in New Orleans. So, my guest this week is the French sailor, the Haitian buccaneer, and the New Orleanian pirate, Jean Lafitte. Yes, I quite like him. I think he's really cool. Oh, this is going to be good. I, I, I actually know any of his so stories, he, uh, but I have heard So, Pirate's Alley in New Orleans, which is like the little alleyway beside, uh... The cathedral is called is named that after him because that's where he and his brother would like peddle their stolen goods. And then there's a place called Jean Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop in mm-hmm. on oh, I forget what street it's on. I think it's actually at the end of Bourbon. Um, but it's the oldest building in America that currently houses a bar. It's kind of cool. And apparently he used to like live and or hang out there. Like, yeah. 
Um, so this is like how I came to know him was like on one of the tours. But anyway, so um, there's very little known about his sort of early life, partially because history wasn't great at recording the lives of like people in the lower classes back then, and partially because Jean himself enjoyed skewing his own narrative. Um, whenever he was telling tales of his childhood, he would often place his birth in different parts okay. of France and would alternate between telling tales of growing up on ships belonging to his father, who he said was a traitor, or growing up in rural wetlands and acquainting himself with the wildlife all on his own. Um, nevertheless, historians believe okay. that um, they sort of narrowed it down to one likely possibility of what his upbringing was actually like. So specifically, historian okay. Jack C. Ramsey, who's like his like top biographer, um, believes that Lafitte was actually born in 1780 in Saint Domingue, yeah. which is like in the modern day Haiti, which at the time was like a French colony, um, and that his parents were French planters who migrated to New Orleans okay. after the death of Lafitte's father. Uh, when Laf- when when they landed in New Orleans, okay. Lafitte's mother married a trader named. Pedro, uh, sorry, a merchant named Pedro Aubrey. Um, and the two of them raised Jean and sent his older brother, Pierre, to be raised somewhere else in Louisiana by extended family. Uh, they believe that Lafitte must have spent a large cool. amount of time in the bayous as a young boy because that would explain his later encyclopedic knowledge of every inland, inlet on the Gulf, basically. So he must have spent a lot of time on boats in the bayou. And meanwhile, Pierre... Okay. Um, who was raised outside must have at some point been involved in some kind of like shipping operation because he became a privateer operating out of Saint-Domingue and it would be him that later involved uh, Jean in that kind of business. But regardless of, yeah, but regardless of like what actually may have happened during their childhood, by 1805 they were well established and had a large warehouse of stolen goods operating in New Orleans. Um... Yes. So, um, their kind of real story began in 1803 when the U.S. made the Louisiana Purchase. Um, This is sort of when they began... uh, By being American, this is when they sort of became pirates because before they were... um, They were sailing under French and Spanish flags and they could be privateers because they would get orders saying sort of allowing them to attack ships that weren't their own but being American they started attacking like any kind of ships including Spanish ships and so that made them outlaws and pirates Um, in 1808 uh, they forced the embargo act America forced the embargo act which stopped American ships from docking at any foreign port this was again not only problematic for them okay. who were doing business illegally, but problematic for actual merchants in New Orleans who relied a lot on trade because, you know, the area is mostly swampland. There's a limited amount of things that you can actually provide for yourself, or back then anyway. Um, right. And so, not being yep. able to like land in Caribbean nations wasn't really much of an option for them. So Jean and his brother Pierre saw this as an opportunity to actually be able to like right. make more money. Um, so they established a port in the um, Barataria, I don't know how you say it, um, area of Louisiana, which is like down all the way south. If you look at a map, you'll see like New Orleans, which is between the Mississippi and like Pont-Chartrain. And then if you like follow it all the way south, you'll see like a little um, bay 
I guess. And that's where they li- they stopped. Um, okay, so. Right. They established there in a small area in a tiny, sparsely populated island and created their own port. Um, this was located beyond a really narrow passage between okay. the barrier islands of Grand Terre and Grand Isle. So it was, like, hard to get to for, like, massive U.S. Navy ships. Um, it was also far enough from the U.S. Naval base that they could easily smuggle in anything they wanted, basically, without being noticed by customs officials. So, yeah. So what they would do is that um, they would go and they would bring things in there from either conquered vessels or from legitimate traits in other Caribbean colonies. And... Um, they would bring them in, and then they would have people waiting there with, like, small barges and, like, little rowboats, and they would transfer things down to those boats and then sort of go yeah. transport it through the bayous all the way to New Orleans. So this could take over a week because, okay. like, A, shitty little boats, and B, bayou waters are well known for being kind of still slow-running waters. So, like, it would be, like, and not only that, it's brackish water, right. so it's salt water. <laughs> So a lot of his men would be, like, basically stuck okay. in salt water for over a week with not a lot else. <laughs> and, like, shit little boats. But that's the only way they could get their sh- things, actually, to New Orleans. Um, so they ran yes. an entire illegal um, port. Yeah. And then they would smuggle yeah, all those goods bayous. across the bayous back yeah. to New Orleans. Um, that so is really cool. Once they got to New Orleans, Pierre would be the silent partner who was sort of like the business mind. And he would run the warehouse and he would like sort of right. convince people basically to go along with this and to turn a blind eye. Because like it, was, it wasn't like anyone wasn't aware that this was happening. Right? But Pierre being like the more charming of the brothers was sort of better suited right. for this role. Yeah, whereas yeah. Jean was a little bit more rough and better suited to like be a pirate basically um and so while he did that jean spent the majority of his time in the barataria managing the like stolen goods and actually like recruiting privateers or like they called themselves privateers regardless um yes so like they Um, they also ran like a pirate and arranging the like smuggling of these goods that's really cool they mostly had one at this point they had like one big boat um, that they would use for, like, pirate-ing. And then most of their, like, personnel were smugglers running from Pirate port activities? Um, but by 1810, right. so just two years later, this port had become one of the most active ports in Louisiana. <laughs> um... And other sailors and seamen used to like uh, just course. go there anyway. I mean, that makes to sense. Either work on the docks, work on the warehouses, or actually just purchase from them directly without having to go through merchants in the city, and so they'd get better rates. Um, this meant that the business was really growing, and Lafitte saw okay. that they had sort of like reached their ceiling. Um, he was also really sick of the fact that it took a week to get from the swamps to the city because he felt that that made him lose a lot of business. So he and his men began holding auctions at um, a place that's, like, kind of halfway um, at Grand Terre, which is, like, another... I think it's another island, but... Okay. Um, So this actually allowed merchants to come directly to them, so they saved, like, half a week's travel. Um, And it also allowed, like... It was a more accessible location. It wasn't, like, a tiny island between other tiny islands in the middle of a marsh, so, like, 
people with bigger boats could get to them. Um, right. Right. No, they at this point they were like, "Yeah, we can little, deal with the like, navy." Tiny pirate vessel, but <laughs> having actually established this auctions at what they called the temple, um, they made a lot of money. And by October of that year, so this was at the beginning of the year. By October of that year, uh, they managed to purchase a schooner, um, and they hired a man called Trey Cook to sail it, who was yep. like a well accomplished, decorated captain. Um, so the schooner didn't have a commission from the national government, okay. and um, if you didn't at the time, having a vessel that was could have been like a military vessel, um, and not having a commission meant that the captain of said vessel was considered a pirate operating illegally. Um, but yes, okay. This, this didn't really cool matter for them, though, because two months All later, right. they actually managed to capture a massive Spanish ship. Um, this ship was loaded with about $18,000 okay. in booty and 77 slaves, um, which obviously we're not... Okay. Like, slavery is awful, and I don't condone anything that this man did, but, you know, that's not the focus of the story. Um, so right. Lafitte... Um, yeah. Sold, got unloaded all the goods, sold the slaves, came out of it with like an insane amount of money, and also captured the ship itself to use in his own now growing fleet. <laughs> oh, so like no. they didn't like they captured the ship, they the ship renamed it the Dorada, and they let the crew go. Um, which was like the first of like okay a series of encounters that sort of established Lafitte as a quote, trustworthy pirate, because he actually wouldn't ever, unless you know, gunfights broke out would never actually aim to hurt the crew um, so yeah, so the right. weeks, well hmm, questionable. so he wasn't a monster um, so within the weeks, um, within weeks of capture, well, capturing the Dorada um, he also captured another schooner with over $9,000 in goods but this schooner was not actually, like, fast or, like, good for his purposes. So okay. this is another thing where he, like, took the goods, let the ship, or let the crew go, and let the captain keep his ship. Yeah. Um, okay. Hmm. He also, like, All these right. two encounters led him to gain a reputation for treating captive crew members well and for being sort of, like, a fair pirate. Yeah. So, um... Right, Shortly cool. after this, again, a third. I'm not going to go through all the ships. Just these three are important. So, uh, after that, they acquired a third ship called La Diligente. So they outfitted it with fourteen, um, with twelve cannons, rather. Um, and then uh, they got another okay. ship, another schooner named Le Petit Milan, which they used to replace the first one and outfitted it with those guns plus a few more cannons so they actually had a proper like not just like a pirate fleet but like a proper sort of almost military outfitted fleet at this point um so with these three ships they managed right. to uh create one of the largest privately owned uh pirate fleets on in like the caribbean um and definitely the most versatile because they had one sort of big boat that could carry lots of cargo and two very fast, very deadly boats that could like sail in front of it and like seize. Um, so for several right. months, they would just send their ships directly to New Orleans 
with a with cargo and call they basically got around the laws by saying that yeah i'm bringing this cargo from um another american port to our own american port which is true they would bring it from like the barataria to oh <laughs> that's that's yes. fantastic so they set up like a fake illegal port yeah. It became accepted as like a legit port because everyone was using it, and they're like, yeah. "Oh." And so while they did that, right. their so other, this stuff like, is just like legit. More shady military ships would like stay back <laughs> and kind of like make sure that this ship was defended. Um. So, uh, yeah. So because they were like sailing from within the United States, customs agents also didn't really feel the need to check what their manifests were all that accurately so they actually managed to uh, smuggle in a lot of things that were illegal as well um right. like the items themselves were illegal but no one really cared all that much and not only that but at the time a little context for the conflict um so new orleans and like where the ports would have been um was very it was a mostly creole yeah. population um the Louisiana Purchase made it so that Americans started right. moving in, but the Creoles didn't immediately take to the Americans. They had sort of an impression that Americans were, like, unruly and drunk. <laughs> and so Americans settled outside of what is now sort of the French Quarter. And what this meant is that the government was American. There was okay. an American population, but the number of, like, Creole citizens far outnumbered them and didn't totally acknowledge this government as, like, actually leading right. them. So they, still living basically under, like, okay. Spanish and French laws in their own minds, were totally fine with what Lafitte was, do was doing, wanted those goods, and he was catering to sort of their preferences. So there was no one totally on board with stopping them right. anyway, so they got away with a lot just by, you know, knowing their audience. Um, right. But this also does mean yeah. that uh, Governor William Claiborne at the time, who was American, did not like this operation. <laughs> um, he called them a uh, fleet right. of brig brigands who infest our coast and overrun our country. Um, and yes, and um, great. He uh, oh no. Oh, and he said that the residents of New Orleans who were grateful to Lafitte for providing them with these luxuries were only feeding into organized crime. Uh, so he also just sort of distanced himself with the people by hating on the piracy. <laughs> As a governor, maybe you should. Um, yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, he should, but also... Uh, yes. Well, I mean, like, they hate him no. for a reason. I mean, it's not his fault the Louisiana Purchase happened. <laughs> well... Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. But, like, they hate him because... Yes. Like, but, so like, they hate um, him because so, of the, okay. who he represents. Uh, also, in 1812, the United States declared war on Britain, as I'm sure most people know. <laughs> so Britain had a really powerful navy, and the U.S. Mm -hmm. had pretty much no naval power whatsoever. So to supplement their navy, the U.S. started offering right. letters of marquee, which are like the letters that allow someone to be a privateer versus a pirate, for two private armed vessels. Right. New Orleans specifically issued six such letters, and they issued okay. them all to smugglers who worked with Lafitte, but not to Lafitte himself. Um, so the smugglers often held these letters of marquee from okay. the U.S., but then also having 
worked with Lafitte. They had these letters of Marquis from Spain, from France, um, from like a lot of different countries in the area, which meant that they basically were authorized to yes. capture ships and capture booty from any nation they wanted. <laughs> yeah. So they would do that. That's so funny. So they, 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 they like yeah. they like get an American so thing. They're like, oh, like look, look, we're look, we're their French. Entry back into the states even more. They would go out. They would capture something from a British ship and then just like do whatever the hell they wanted. They'd come back. They'd submit their like booty from captured British ships to the American authorities at New Orleans, and then they would just be let in with anything else they had without being checked because they submitted their goods. Um. Yeah, so this allowed their operation to grow. Oh, my God. Um, At this point, basically, Lafitte's was the primary importer into New Orleans, the two Lafitte's. Pierre's warehouse was huge and booming. And, like, you could basically walk around town and, like, no one would be like, hey, that's a pirate. They'd be like, hey, that's our, like, great businessman who brings us the shit we want. Um, So they... Right. Yeah. Um, Well, Pierre was, was, right? But Lafitte... Lafitte was still viewed as a pirate, and the governor... Well, he was viewed as legit. ...had it out for him. Um, Sorry, Jean. Um, They're both Lafitte's. (laughs) So, um... Yeah, yeah. The smuggling operations, though, like, that were still happening in the Barataria, were really, really reducing the amount of revenue that the American customs offices and, like, other American authorities were able to collect. So... They were determined to halt their operations because in a time of war, they need those funds. Um, So despite the fact that they were technically working for the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Navy still decided to more or less invade the Barataria. Um, They went to do that. They realized their ships could not actually enter the swamplands. And that even if they could, they didn't at this point have enough ships to take on Lafitte's fleet. So it's grown. Isn't it, isn't it like three ships or has it grown um, at this point? So on okay. November 10th um, the United States District District Attorney decided to charge Lafitte with a violation of revenue law. Which is like More or less, tax but fraud, it's like a minor like charge, a fraud. smaller charge than piracy, but it's enough to like take him to jail. <laughs> uh, so with this charge, 40 soldiers right. were able to like be sent on land to go ambush the Barataria and the island. Um, they captured Lafitte, they captured Pierre, they captured 25 other smugglers, and they confiscated several thousand dollars of contraband. Um, the smugglers were all released after they posted bond, and they, of course, okay. refused to return to trial. Um, Lafitte uh, also, right. after posting a much higher bond, was Lafitte and his brother were also both released. Again, disappeared. We're not coming back to trial. The district attorney's office kind of seemed okay with that right. because they had seized the $1,000 of contraband. So they kind of got what they wanted out of that. Thousands of dollars. One thousand dollars. Um. So they kind of sort of got what they wanted. Oh, out of okay. That. Um. Yeah, okay, the money so that they like thought they were owed because they were intervening, right? Um. Which is why also the like lesser charge right. than piracy was granted. Um. So in October, uh, there right. was another ambush, or rather another prepared ambush 
Secor on Lafitte and his smugglers. Um, however, this time the sm uh, smugglers had heard ahead of time, had been warned, and they were prepared. They wounded the officers, they escaped safely with their contraband, and they actually managed to steal $500 from the, the invading forces. <laughs> Well, that's like that's just I mean, like kick them all their Stop down. invading me, bro! Like, <laughs> I mean, five hundred dollars is a reasonable amount of money um, at the time. So, oh, yeah, this, exactly. The governor finally offered five hundred a uh, five hundred dollar reward for Lafitte's capture. Um, yes. Uh, five hundred dollars. <laughs> so, within a few days of that um, offer from the governor, there were flyers put around New Orleans offering five hundred dollars for uh, the arrest of the governor. <laughs> Um. Yeah, these flyers were signed by. Of course, John oh Lafitte. wow! <laughs> baller. Yes. That is baller. And like, I'm, I'm sure he's gonna sure. pay them off with but the money that he course, took from uh, the government's people forces. People tend to think that this was like not actually him. And Lafitte wrote a note to Clareborn saying, "Um, I didn't do that. Of course not. Also, shut up. I'm not a pirate. What are you saying? Um." <laughs> Right. Uh, so, like, this is sort of, like, how they yeah. let it play out. He kind of did that, obviously, just to undermine him and, like, just carried on with his business. He wasn't actually willing to engage in any kind of, like, back and forth with this governor. Um, right. But at this point, this right. is two years later, the temple uh, auction place that he had set up was, like, booming. So he decided that he needed to set up a different auction site just outside New Orleans, closer to the city, probably get even more business. Um, officials caught wind of this and they tried to break up right. the auction by force which resulted in gunfire gunfire, uh, and it resulted in the officers that were invading two of them being killed and two of them being wounded um, okay no casualties on the smugglers end. with no casualties on the smugglers the end this though is this may have been when Lafitte actually sort of overstepped his bounds the people of New Orleans were not happy with him setting up this auction the merchants specifically right. like weren't happy because it allowed customers to buy goods directly from right. Lafitte and therefore, like, not pay as much. And it meant that the merchants lose, lost business. Cuts them out of... And the people didn't like it because it was bringing that kind of confrontation right. basically to their doorstep. Um, so this kind of made it so that right. Governor Claiborne got more... Uh, his views on Lafitte gained more speed and his, like, actually wanting to stop him was supported a little bit more by the people in the city. Um, so he appealed to the new slate right. legislature, um, and he said that, you know, lost revenues due to smuggling mean that we need absolutely to stop this. We are in war. We can't keep up with this, et cetera. The people are on my side. Um, and he requested right. an approval to raise a militia to go disperse of those. This is a quote. Disperse those desperate men on Lake Barataria. Oh whose piracies God. have rendered our shores a terror to neutral flags. Um, this le legislature appointed him a committee to the matter, but That's... most of their constituents, the constituents of the committee, were merchants in New Orleans who actually benefited from the smuggling, so they didn't authorize the militia. Um, a grand jury okay. then indicted Pierre Lafitte after having heard testimony against him by the city's, like, legion, like some of the city's merchants who were affected by this, like, close by thing. Um, and so Lafitte... Lafitte right. Ah, Lafitte was arrested, tried, and convicted, and jailed um, on charges of having knowingly and wittingly aided and assisted, procured, commanded, counseled, and advised persons to commit acts of piracy. This is Pierre Lafitte. 
This is Pierre Lafitte. So they jailed his so brother. Wait, is this John or Pierre? Because okay. they couldn't get to him. Yeah. Okay. So this is That's gonna by go jailing Pierre Lafitte, they're also basically stopping the f- operations in New Orleans, right? I mean, they're not. There are other smugglers also helping out, but you know, the head of right. Them. Yeah. So right, but, they, but, they, but like they're cutting jailed, off the head. Uh, John kept going. He was like, I, I, "There's nothing I like can necessarily do about this right now. I'm gonna keep being a pirate. I'm gonna keep smuggling in goods." So he's keep he's still running his port. He's still running his auctions. Right. Um, and he yeah. kind of starts to look around to like, "What can I do? What can I hold against America?" Um, and so he realizes that the British Navy had increased controls okay. over the Gulf of Mex- Mexico. And they had established that base at Pensacola, which okay, it's kind of hard to get to Louisiana if you're like trading around the Caribbean if you don't go through the the waters outside Pensacola. Um, yeah, so right, on, and the British um, hold it now. So he kind of, you know, he starts sailing kind of in their waters, not fully in to get attacked, but he starts sailing in their waters, and. Eventually, the British ship, the HMS Sophie, fires on one of his ships that while they're returning to the Barataria, which is kind of what Lafitte wanted. So he his ship, okay. in response, grounds in shallow water where he knows right. that the British ship can't Who's follow. Who's provoking them. And he just sort of waits. The British ship, in response, okay. raises a white flag and launches a small ship with several officers in it. Lafitte also sends some of his men to row halfway and meet okay. them. Sorry, doesn't send. He gets on board with them, but not in his captain's gear. All right. Just like as a normal sailor. And goes halfway to meet them. This is, by the way, in my opinion, right. not the pirates movies we have, but the pirates movies we deserve. <laughs> um, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like halfway. Oh, no, this sounds they're really like, cool. You know, his big ship is still in the swampland. The Navy ship can't get there. But they're halfway. They're meeting. And, cap- and on the small British boat, Captain Nicholas Lock- Lockyer, um, the commander of the Sophie, actually got on with it and right. delivered to Lafitte's men two packages. Um, they, Lafitte's men don't open the packages right away, but instead invite the uh, British officers to row to their small island. There, they disembark. Um, Lafitte identifies himself and opens the package. Okay. What? Uh, oh, <laughs> before that, though, his own smugglers were like, okay, we got him. Let's lynch the British. And Lafitte was like, wait, 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 wait. No, we can use this. <laughs> and he actually like, opens negotiations. So he opens the two packages. Right. One is a letter under the seal of King George um, that is <laughs> offering Lafitte and his forces British citizenship, land grants in British colonies, in the Americas, and um, a large fleet of naval vessels if they promised to assist the naval fight against the United States and to return any recent property that had been taken from the Spanish ships because Brit- Britain was allied with Spain. Um, oh, because they were allies? And if they refused right. the offer, the British Navy would destroy the Barataria. <laughs> the second item was a personal letter. Well... Okay, so that's not really an It is an offer, offer. because... Right now, they should be aiming to destroy the Bartaria anyway. Um, the second item was a personal right. note to Lafitte from um, from the captain superior, 
uh, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Nichols, urging him to please accept the offer that it would be like best for him and that they could use someone like him on their fleet. Lafitte, however, genuinely right. believed that the U.S. would win the war. Um, he also thought that he could okay. more easily defeat the U.S. revenue officers than he could the British Navy. So he was kind of like in a weird place. <laughs> um, he had also heard right. that in August, American officials were planning to attack the Bartaria themselves. Uh, under the command of Commodore Daniel Patterson. Okay. So he was, like, being attacked from all sides, not totally right. sure what to do. And his brother was in jail, the person, uh, like, running his operation. Yeah. The person who normally, so like, does, he, like, deals uh, with tells the British, you know, yeah, sure. All right. Cool. Yes. Leave now, please. <laughs> um, and then he writes the Americans. And then he writes to the Americans saying that they have nothing to fear from him. Um, that his men favored helping the British, but that okay. he needed 15 days to review their offer. And then he said, well, he did tell the British to give him some time. Right. right? So he's, it's, he's pretty much like, and he pretty much yeah, told the Americans exactly. to like um, match the offer. And then on top of like okay. sending this to the American Navy and the American military, he sent a letter to Jean Blanc, who was a member of the Slate legislature, um, and in a personal note, he reminded him that his brother was still in jail and that maybe he deserved an early release and that, you know, I, with my brother right. by my side, I would be a lot more help, happy to like help New Orleans and feel like a good American citizen. Negotiate. And he, on top of that, right. sent another letter. Nudge, nudge, to, wink, wink. Um... He sent another letter to uh, Andrew Jackson, who was, you know, yes, yes, who was not to Andrew Jackson. No, no, directly. At this so point, at this he's, point like he's president, a right? And he goes, you know, maybe, okay. he's maybe, like maybe New Orleans doesn't yeah. have a lot of naval protection. Maybe I have a couple of boats. Maybe they, those boats have a couple of guns. Just saying. <laughs> um, right. Shortly after this, Pierre Lafitte quote, right. escaped from jail. <laughs> Yes. Two days after this. I see. Oh, oh no. Oh, look. Oh, Wait, what's that? what? Oh, someone oh the door's key. open. Oh, oh weird. Oh, that must have been a mistake. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So Pierre is back. Honest mistakes. Lafitte guarantees no he's collusion. not going to join the British. Um, he does not actually guarantee any protection to Louisiana, but he right. does guarantee he's not going to join the British. Um, and September rolls around. Right. And the U.S. orders an attack on Lafitte's colony. Yes. So they do not hold to their... The U.S. Agreement. does? So in 1814, September 1814, yeah. Commodore Daniel Patterson does in fact set sail aboard the USS Carolina to attack the Bartari. Um, he right. He takes with him six gunboats okay. and a tender, which I don't know what it is, but you know, it doesn't sound good. Um... <laughs> They uh, anchored off at Grand Terre, which yeah. is one of the surrounding islands, and the gunboats fully attacked the Bartaya. By the morning, 10 right. armed pirate ships formed a line in the bay, and within a short period, Lafitte's men abandoned their ship, set yeah. their own ships on fire so that they could not be claimed by the American ships, and went ashore. 
they then from the shore fled the area through the swamps okay completely hid themselves out no one was captured so by the time Patterson's men actually be, were able okay. to land on the island, they didn't really have any resistance. They captured a few people, but they were just like citizens. Um, and Lafitte and his men escaped safely. Sorry? And all the smugglers were gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they were all gone. Uh, but they, they lost, lost a couple. Boats. They lost like eight boats. And then after that, Ameri- the Americans did manage to take six ships that okay. were like docked on the island. Um, as well as 20 cannons and about $500,000 worth of goods. So it was a big loss for them. Um, but right. Lafitte got away, which was mostly of what he was concerned yeah. about. And the uh, temple and the warehouse in New Orleans were still operational. So they still had a working operation. Um, right. So. Right. Uh, 10 days later... Patterson starts returning to New Orleans and he gets to New Orleans and he starts telling people that he performed a major conquest for the United States and he described Lafitte as a man who for about two years past has been famous for crimes that all civilized worlds war against. He is supposed to have captured 100 vessels of all nations and certainly murdered the crews of all he took and took no one and no one ever escaped him, which is bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, and the people in New Orleans knew that was bullshit. Bullshit. Like, oh, this American coming in and like ruining the person who like got us our fancy shit. Mm-hmm. I don't like this. Um. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Fuck these Americans. You know, Patterson came in expecting to be a hero, and he was to the Americans in New Orleans. But the Creole population and the population that you know knew Lafitte and their operation, not interested. Um. So Patterson. Right. A little slighted. Um, files a legal claim for the profits that he confiscated from the island for himself. Um, yeah. So okay. Lafitte, okay. from a distance, hires an attorney. And uh, this attorney argues that the okay. ships had flown the flag of Cartagena, which was a, an area that was at peace with the United States, and seizing anything from that area from those ships would be illegal. Um, one of Lafitte's men then testified okay. that the citizens of the Barataria had never intended to fight the U.S., but had only prote- uh, prepared their vessels to flee and that were f- they were forcibly and violently stopped. Um, the judge ruled that Patterson should actually get the customary shares of the profits from the good, but um, inf- unfortunately those goods had already been sold and that he didn't have any ownership to the ships. Couldn't claim any ownership to the ships. So Lafitte basically got his ships back, and the sold goods were okay. sort of, you know, whatever. Yeah. But this means that Patterson got nothing. Just gone. What? Wait, but didn't they burn all the ships? No, they burned the ships that were ready to flee, but they didn't had they left them on the land ships? that the British seized. Or the Americans seized, sorry. Ah, uh, yeah. okay. So basically they got nothing. <laughs> Um, hearing of all of this and sort of being kind of impressed with Lafitte, uh, U.S. Attorney General Richard Rush, Rush, uh, requested a pardon for every anyone who was involved in the conflict in the Barataria, saying that for generations smugglers were seen as esteemed, honest, and and honest, and the people of New Orleans had sympathy for them. Um, so you know, let's let this go already. Right. 
He was also hoping that by doing this, he could once right. again bring up Lafitte's offer to help defend Louisiana. Um, according to right. Claiborne, the um, governor that hated Lafitte from before, um, this is sort of when he started to get on board as yeah. well. He wrote to Andrew Jackson saying that Patterson okay. had destroyed a potential first line of defense for Louisiana by capturing Lafitte and his ships. Wow. Oh yes. my god, so Patterson's just getting like, shit on by everyone now. From getting letters from pirates and then getting letters from his own government officials being like, hey, let's side with the pirates. And he goes, no, fuck you. He basically goes, I ask right. you, can we really place confidence in the honor of men who have allied with pirates and robbers? Which is his own way of saying, like, can I even trust you anymore? Um, but, right. <laughs> but the war rages on. Three months later, Andrew okay. Jackson arrives in New Orleans and he discovers that the city literally has no defenses. Um, yeah. yeah um, they're like, we've been telling you this. Approximately 1,000 unseasoned troops and two ships ready for use <laughs> to defend against the English Navy. Yeah. So an entire navy. Yeah, the city did have control cool, of eight cool, of the cool, ships cool, taken cool. from Lafitte because they were sort of the goods that were sold, but it didn't have enough men or sailors to use them, and they weren't the ships that were ready for defense. Um, and so you know, sort oh of with his God. tail between his legs, not Jackson, but like the government of New Orleans kind of goes, "Hey, could you guys maybe like smugglers? They don't approach Lafitte, but they approach the smugglers individually, and they go, maybe you want to help us, maybe." And they all basically go, no. Like, yeah. we don't like your raids. And honestly, we're go loyal to Lafitte, so fuck you. This is when Jackson goes, all right, I got to do what I have to do. So he yeah. meets with Lafitte in mid-December. He manages to arrange a meeting. And he offers um, Lafitte sort of immunity right. if he would agree again to defend the city and serve under a U.S. flag. Um. On December right. 19th, they come to an agreement, and the Slate Legislature passes a resolution recommending a full pardon for all former residents of the Barataria, including Lafitte. Um, so this is when Lafitte encourages his men right. to like drop their grudge and to join the New Orleans militia. So they do. On December 23rd, right. the British fleet advance, and they reach the Mississippi River. Lafitte is prepared. He realizes that the American line of defense was way too small to, like, deal with the British fleet. And so what he does is that he sets up cannons on land, obviously, to fight the British from land. Um, and then he also right. uh, extended the line of his ships to nearby swamps because, again, he knew that the British ships could not enter the shallow waters. This is something Couldn't. that he suggested, but he didn't actually have right. all that authority, all that much authority. So he suggests it to Jackson, and Jackson immediately orders it done. Just full trust in Lafitte. Um, okay. I mean, to be fair, like, he yeah. caused you so much problem, like, so, so many problems. So the British begin firing ship, at so. the American lines on December 28th. They were sort of, like, I guess, teasing each other for a while. But he starts actually firing at the American lines on September 28th, and they were quickly, yeah. 
and adeptly repulsed by an artillery crew manned by two of Lafitte's former lieutenants. Um, they were completely set back by uh, gunmen on the land that were trained by Lafitte, and their navy was basically pushed back entirely. Um, Patterson, Commodore Patterson from before, uh, was served in, we're serving in a lesser position in this attack, and he had to end up praising Lafitte and the men from the Barataria who helped actually push back the British ships. <laughs> ha! <laughs> On, uh, ha. this is, un unfortunately, they had hadn't, like, news hadn't reached them yet. The War of 1812 was actually over at this point, but Lafitte did win the Battle of New Orleans for the Americans. Yeah. Um, That's with, really like, cool. no ships. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's kind of neat. Yeah. That's sort of like what he's known for. Well, that and all of the like piracy um, in that part of the world. Um, <laughs> uh, and right. a lot of the uh, privateers from the Barataria were then offered formal positions on U.S. ships. And a lot of them did take it just because good life. Um, yeah. And Jackson. Uh, right. <laughs> Jackson granted honors to Jean and Pierre Lafitte, and he uh, gave them military titles and land in New Orleans. He also formally regressed, um, granted clemency for the nice. Lafitte's and the men who had served under them, and the government granted them a full pardon. So, yeah, sort of. Um, Happy from ending. there. <laughs> Lafitte's not done. He's like, hey, I still like being a pirate. Oh, boy. Also, it made more money than just being, like, working for the government. Yeah. So he, uh, a couple years later, yeah. or, yeah, in 1815, he, he and his brother Pierre were accosted, I suppose, by the Spanish government and asked if they would be willing to be spies for them. Uh, during the Mexican War of Independence. Okay. They agreed, and collectively they were given the code right. name number 13. Pierre was uh, stationed in New Orleans okay. and sent to number 13. That's so fucking yeah. dorky, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, code Pierre name was 13. in New Orleans, and he was given the responsibility of sort of uh, spying on the Spanish revolutionaries that might be stationed there. And Jean was sent to Galveston Island, which is was at the time yeah. part of Spanish Texas. Um, and so he was, again, he was less charged, he was less responsible for spying and more responsible for, like, basically killing any revolutionary sentiment in the area. Um, specifically, Galveston Island right. was home to uh, revolutionary, Mexican revolutionary Louis Michel Ori. Um, who was, like, really right. trying to help the revolution happen, despite being a French privateer, so I don't really know what his stake in it was, but right. whatever. Um, so by early 1817, right. other revolutionaries were starting to congregate in Galveston, and they were hoping to make it the home base for the Mexican Revolution. Lafitte arrived in 1817 in March. Okay, and Pierre <laughs> Lafitte into there. his stay. The leaders of the revolutionaries all okay. left the island. Following their... Yeah, the following day, okay. the day after they so left, he, he declared himself... 
to have command over the island, and he appointed his own officers. Uh, later, he sailed he to New Orleans to report his activities, uh, and with Spanish he permission, he returned to Galveston and promised to make weekly reports of his activities. At Galveston, he developed another okay. smuggling base. It was another really active port, just like Barataria. Galveston was a seaward island that was protected by a really large bay, so he could see anyone coming. Um, as a part of Mexico, it was outside the authority of the U.S., right. and it was largely uninhabited. So he could basically set up whatever kind of operation he wanted. Um, he renamed his colony Campeche after the Mexican right. outpost f- further south along the coast. Um, he and his men built over 200 right. structures, really sturdy structures. They built a town. Um, they flew their, yep. they um, operated their ships uh, under the flag of Mexico so as to not be like stopped basically um and right. they established a colony that eventually grew to over 200 men and several women in under a year yeah um that oh, wow. revolutionary from before the french privateer louis michel Aurie, he returned to galveston a few months later hoping to again yeah. incite riots and he left immediately because every man in the colony would tell him no i am loyal not to spain but to lafitte um, so uh, <laughs> the process of actually moving to colony because Lafitte started the uh, Lafitte's colony started like becoming kind of popular and people started being interested in actually just legitimately going there um, the process of moving there required all newcomers to yeah. uh, be interviewed by Lafitte himself so he would see if they were worthy and then it required him to take a loyalty oath to him Sometimes people would come to him wanting to move. Sometimes he would go and recruit okay. people to like for different businesses or to like be one of his smugglers. And he would do this usually in New Orleans and have sort of like recruitment interviews in bars. Um, his headquarters in the right. colony was a two-story building um, that was painted bright red that he carved a moat around and he called it the Maison Rouge. <laughs> um. Yes, but he didn't live there. He lived on his ship, which allowed Literal. him to make like it away. Um, so from this port, because it was sort of not really right. owned by anyone, like technically it was owned by Spain, but like they weren't using it. Um, from this port, Lafitte was able to start again collecting other yeah. letters of Marquis. And then for the people who moved in, he would distribute his own letters of Marquis. <laughs> with... Yes, he was giving people So he, ran, he was like running his own whatever mini ships they want. <laughs> He was, like, giving letters of marquee from an imaginary nation to authorize the ships that were sailing, like, Galveston ships, his own ships, um, to attack ships from all nations, without exception. Yeah. Um, So, this is operating pretty well. He has this for over two years. Um, But, unfortunately... Lafitte might be larger than any government in the area, but he is not larger than nature. <laughs> a hurricane swept in and ruined all of the buildings, save for six. Okay. Most people got out alive, but several people died. Okay. And people then quickly resettled. Um, right. The Spanish quickly took back that land, and Lafitte was sort of resigned to his boat. Um, but while the Spanish did, like, right. sort of 
claim that land again. They didn't really move in. Um, and Lafitte started sort of rebuilding. This second colony wasn't as successful, but it did survive until 1821. Eventually, a U.S. enterprise, um, the U.S. Right. enterprise came in and, like, removed Lafitte from the Gulf. He didn't really put up much of a fight. He was just like, yeah, I'll leave. Like, there's not a lot here for me anymore anyway. Um, so he left peacefully. Uh, he burned all the structures he had built so that the U.S. could claim them. And he just sort of, like, fucked off, basically. The yeah. rest of Lafitte's life was actually... Uh, it was really cool, but, like, kind of less eventful. He continued being a pirate. And he set up different kind of... Uh, settlements like this in different places. Uh, his largest independent one being a, just outside of Cuba. At one point, he faced a mutiny. Several of okay. his crew were tired of uh, sailing illegally. They were wanted to be privateers and not pirates. Um, so what Lafitte did was instead of like being like, yeah, let's this, let this turn out turn into like a massive gunfight. He was like, okay. You want to do that, that's fine. I'll give you one of my largest vessels. You go, and whoever's still loyal to me stays with me. Um, so they agree. Right. They part ways. In the middle of the night, Lafitte and the people who are still loyal to him attack the ship, <laughs> ruin it, make it unsailable, but leave the crew alive <laughs> and just leave. <laughs> yeah. It's like um, they were, swimming. like, picked up by other ships. Like, they were apparently fine. Right. Um, so after yeah. that, he got arrested by the Americans, but escaped jail. He, um, you know, continued his business. His crew, uh, his fleet grew again. Pierre um, Lafitte kept, continued the business in New Orleans. Um, he started capturing now American ships as well from his base in Cuba. And eventually, Simon Bolivar caught wind of this. This was during the Colombian revolution um and he sent out a letter okay. to the great captain not the pirate the great captain jean lafitte and he got in touch and he said columbia needs a navy <laughs> um yeah. join us and we'll let you we'll give you a fully armed like ready for battle fleet um basically anything you want in columbia just 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 come lead our navy. So he does that. And he pushes back the Spanish. And he, like, basically. Right. Yeah. He basically, like. So he's a navy for hire. for them. And he spends the rest of his life fighting for Colombia. Um, eventually, Lafitte is wounded in battle with a Spanish right. ship. And he dies on land. Um, but it's sort of like a hero's death at that point. And his obituary, yeah. which was distributed in Colombia, um, read, right. quote, uh, this is the loss of a brave naval officer, and it is moving. Um, no papers in America oh, wow. reported his death. Not a lot of people in America, to be fair, knew what happened to him. There was a widely accepted rumor for a long time in New Orleans right. that he had helped free Napoleon, and they were so, like living covertly in New Orleans together. Um, but that's it. That is the end of Jean Lafitte. Right. Yeah. Wow. I wonder. I wonder if you met Gregor see, McGregor. Is that the right time period? Is that the right time period? Because Gregor McGregor was like doing a lot of... Sorry? Yeah, it was It was, It was. was the same... Uh, revo- I think, I'm pretty sure it was the same um, revolution in Colombia. Gregor McGregor was doing a lot of the Maybe. on-land stuff and like he led the famous retreat. Cool. Battle. Yeah. 
So that's the life of Jean Lafitte. Yeah. Woo. Intersection. <laughs> nice. I keep like I'm like expecting it like expecting it to end. I was like, okay. So he that must be it, down. right? Now he must settle <laughs> down. Nope. Yeah. Seemed like a good time to be a pirate. I don't know. I was really impressed when I was hearing his story. Like every tour I went on, people would stop in front of like a different building and be like, and Jean Lafitte went here and Jean Lafitte went there. <laughs> like, oh, people really like him here. <laughs> I can just imagine like the tour guy just like talking for like an hour uh, in yeah, front he talked of the for, like, a solid alleyway. 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's cool though. All right. Cool. Right. All right, I, I guess it's time to rank our guests. Uh, wait, so how does it work? Do I rank yours first yeah. or do you rank mine first? Yeah. So I'm, no, no. Okay. We, I think we do it in the um, order that we I presented. Give so your guy you rank a... Okay, as a dinner guest, probably like a 10. I imagine he's very courteous um, and like has interesting stories. As oh, a yeah. human being, probably like a 3. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd give him, like, a two. Fair. He's a fucking monster. Like, there's some stories I didn't talk about. That makes me feel kind of, like... That Loretta Young story makes me slightly sympathetic to him, just because, like... Yeah, it's fucked up, but, like, given her circumstance at the time, that was probably, like, a good thing for her to have happen. Yeah. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, they were respectful of her wishes. And, like, she was consulted in every step in the process. Like, I, I told that one because that, that was one of the Fair. least horrifying things that they did. Yeah. And, like, one where they were relatively respectful. But, mm-hmm. yeah. That was more of an exception. Um, Jean Lafitte, I'm probably going to go for, like, nice. a solid <laughs> eight. Like, in... Just... Yeah, can you imagine the stories he'd like, It was pretty about? badass. Also, he'd probably, like, drink either of us under the table, which might be fun. Oh, yeah. Also, seriously. Oh, absolutely. This Pirates movie. Why the fuck are we wasting time on Jack Sparrow? <laughs> ah! Right? Yeah, and like, they, there were like, all sorts of really cool sake, pirates. These, the, the, the sequels write themselves. Like, Jean Lafitte's entire life, like... Yeah. And this is the one... Yeah. And this is the one where he's like the, the hired Navy for a country. Basically him, like, setting this up and being lured by his brother into a life of piracy and... Rah, 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 and then him being like... And then, like, 1808 comes around and he's, like, the dreaded yeah. pirate Jean Lafitte. He just established the Barataria, right? No, so I think so I think the first movie would actually be the second... Like, the one that you said second. And they do a prequel. Okay. Because well, I, I was gonna say the second one would be up until like he loses the bar. Like I think you could, I, I, like, I think that would work better as a. And then. Oh right, yeah. But like, but like, but like, I think like you do like the first stuff, like the like crazy exciting stuff. First, and then you do a prequel, and then you go back and do the post-war things, like like when like All when right. he leaves the U.S. Yeah, because like, because like, I'm just kind of like picturing the like. Oh wow! Like the like okay. this is when it happened moment. Like this is when he became yeah, the pirate. Yeah, okay, I see it. I was just because I was picturing the the the, I guess what you're calling a prequel, but as more exciting. But 
But I guess it's more of like a character-driven oh, plot than like an adventure plot. Which I guess you need your first like pirate movie to be an adventure yeah. plot. But yeah. Yeah. Oh man, it would just be so cool. That's what I was thinking. I want them done. Someone at Warner Brothers, get on it. <laughs> Sorry. Write it. Yeah. Write it. Come on, MGM. <laughs> we shouted you out today. Also, just like you know, we gave Disney, you very positive you press coverage. Out. Maybe look in this direction. But, like, I wouldn't want Disney to touch this That's one because they'd, like, whitewash the shit out of it. Are, like, happy. Not happy, but, like, easy. Because I can't say the Pirates movies are happy. Yeah. Yeah, like, like I think I think it would be better, like... I think it might even oh, almost no, work as, like, an indie Oh, no, because then everything would look so thing. shit. <laughs> no indie movie has the budget for a naval picture. Yeah. That's true. Like, I guess you can't really do, like, a big adventure. No, it adventure. has to be, like, a summer blockbuster yeah, adventure. True. But, like, with heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want this movie. <laughs> Who would we cast? Write it. Who would we cast? Sorry? I think we should cast Orlando no. Bloom to no. the parts for Caribbean. <laughs> Hard no. I keep picturing Josh Gad as Pierre Lafitte. Right. Josh Gad? Uh, he uh, recently who? played um, LeFou in the new Beauty and the Beast movie. I, mean, I don't know why, but I keep picturing him as Pierre. Okay. Lafitte. Yeah. Oh, like to be clear, I wasn't saying like Orlando Bloom is Pierre Lafitte or Jean. Lafitte. Oh, yeah, maybe he can I'm, be like, like I meant that as like him like doing like a Commodore cameo. Commodore gets shat on all the time. <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. That was, it's not. You no, really it's don't not like Orlando that. Bloom. I think he's you know whatever. I don't really think much of her, like. Not, I don't think much of him, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Orlando Bloom. I just don't see him as a pirate. I just don't think that was believable casting. He's very clean right. and pretty. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's not. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure who I would cast. Right? Like, I can't think I of anything off the top of my head. Yes, tweet us your if anyone wants to tweet ideal us. casting for this, because I want to make this happen. Us. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, so that All was right. us. Well, we have an exit strip. Oh, God, fuck. It's been a while. We have things we say when we're saying goodbye. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, yes. Follow us on Twitter email- and Instagram oh. at Dining Room Hist. Email us at diningroomhistories and at join gmail. our Facebook com. group, Dining Room Histories Podcast, to send us your questions um, for our guest and let us know who you would have for dinner, over for dinner, um, and why, and maybe we'll read it on the show. Yes. It and rate, so. review, and subscribe, please. Thank you. And goodbye. All right. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for bearing with us. Bye. We're back. <laughs> Bye.